Now, uh, last week we looked at what's called the Christ Hymn. It's a hymn that's all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we don't know whether Paul wrote the hymn or whether he was quoting the hymn. He could be the author of the hymn, or this could be a hymn that had been circulating amongst churches, and the church people every Sunday night would sing a hymn like this, and he's borrowing it because it has certain things in it that he wants to emphasize. And he embeds it in his letter. We're just not sure. But the lyrics in this hymn, which were verses like 15 through 20, say that Christ is the ruler of the world, uh, not Caesar. That's implying that if Christ rules the world, Caesar is not the ruler of the world. And then the hymn goes on and says, he's not only the, the ruler of creation, he's the ruler of a new creation. Not only a ruler of present humanity, but a new humanity that's being birthed, which uh, he calls the church. And he says that Christ, through his death, has brought about reconciliation between us and God, between people who are in the church and God. Now that word reconciliation uh, can be confusing. Another word for reconciliation is the word peace. If we're reconciled, we are at peace with each other. So just think of the word peace. Big word for the Romans. Uh, the Roman agenda was called Pax Romana, Roman peace. And Rome brought about peace through force. It would come to the edge of territories, the edge of the empire, and it would call upon the leaders of these countries on the edge of the empire, right on its outskirts people who were in opposition to Rome and hostile to Rome, and they would come, the soldiers would come, and they would say to those leaders outside the Roman Empire, we bring you good news of peace. Caesar offers peace. And all you have to do is bow the knee and say, Caesar's Lord, and submit. And if they said, well, we're not going to do it, then they would bring about peace through force. Because they were, they would just go in and they would invade the country, and the country would be brought under the umbrella of Rome, but it would be done through force. So that is that where we get that whole philosophy that might is right. And so Jesus brings about peace with God and in God's kingdom, but he doesn't do it through force, he does it through faith. In fact, Rome saw Jesus as hostile to their, to their empire didn't they? They saw Jesus as a troublemaker. He wouldn't bow the knee, so guess what they did? Just killed him. That got rid of the opposition. They figured that he, they could bring his, his movement in tow, you know, scare his followers just to submit, and they got rid of him. So they used force to bring about order in the empire, got rid of Jesus. But ironically, it was in him dying, submitting, facing the cross by faith, trusting in his Father to take care of him, that he ends up reconciling or bringing peace to his people. So that's what this hymn is all about. So now what Paul is going to do, he's going to apply those lyrics to his readers, the Colossians. And when I say his readers, just another aside here. 90% uh, of the people in the Roman Empire couldn't read. <laughs> so we're not dealing with his readers. We're dealing with 
his listeners, because this letter would have been taken to the church at Colossae, and it would have been read out loud to them. That's how they received the letter. Through hearing. That's called orality. They received it through an oral transmission. Uh, we, the printing press didn't come into being until early 1500s. What like people had a Bible hanging around, you know, carrying a Bible to church with them like we do. The only scriptures they had there were scriptures that were written by Paul and others in handwriting, and then it was read out loud, and there were a few copies circulating, but it wasn't anything like we think. So he's going to take this, and then what they would do is they take this song, and maybe each week for a month, sing it. And that's how they learned it. What, the, what he was trying to get across, it became part of them through singing. Just like we sing, victory in Jesus. There's a message there, isn't it? Huh? We heard the old, old story, how a Savior came from glory. And then from those lyrics, we are strengthened and we're encouraged. And so Paul takes these lyrics and now he's going to apply it to his, his I'll call it his audience, to the Colossians. Okay? So let's look at verse 21. Colossians 1, 21. So he says, For it pleased the Father. I'm verse 21, I was reading verse 19. I got so excited. I skipped <laughs> verse 21. And you, based on the lyrics of that song, how Christ brings peace, and you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked, wicked works, he has now reconciled. He has now brought about peace. Now let me unpack this for you. You'll notice he's speaking to you, which in this case would be the Colossians, and it's a Gentile audience mainly. So he's talking to these Gentiles, and uh, he speaks of their past experience in verse 21. Look what he says. You who once were. Do you see that? This is what they were in the past. What were they? Look at verse 21. First of all, they were alienated. That means estranged. Second of all, they were enemies. That means they were opponents to God. In the past, they were estranged, which means they were separated from God. Second of all, they were enemies, which means they were opponents or they were hostile toward God. Notice where this estrangement and hostility was located in verse 21. In your mind. Do you see that? In your mind. And then look what it says. By wicked works. They were estranged in their mind, but then it manifested itself. So there was an inward estrangement and alienation, and there was an outward estrangement and alienation that manifested itself. Inward, watch this. They had a disposition against God. A disposition against God. Outward, there was an exhibition against God. Wicked works. You see that? So, it had to do with their thinking and it had to do with their behavior. So they were estranged from God and their behavior proved it because they were involved in idolatry and they were bowing the knee and they were calling Caesar Lord. And so this was their past condition. Now look at their present experience. 
in verse 21. Yet now, you see that? Once were, that's what you were in the past. Now look at this. Yet now, that's your present experience, that's what you are now. Yet now, he reconciled. Notice, he did it. Christ is the one who brought about peace. He took the initiative. What did they do in the past? Wicked works. What did he do? Reconcile. They were against God. He was for them. They did something. That's what they actively did. Rebelled against God. Here's what he did for them. This was something passive. In the past, they did something actively against him. But now, guess what? They're just the passive recipients of this reconciliation or peace. This is all God's initiative. Now look at the means of this reconciliation in verse 22. He did this in the body of his flesh through death. You see that? That's his death on the cross. Through his death on the cross, he reconciles or brings peace between these people and his heavenly Father. Notice verse 21, in your mind, you see that? In your mind, look at verse 22, in his body, you see that? In, his, in their mind, but he does something in his body. He lays down his life for them. To what end? To what end? Verse 22. Here's the end. Here's the aim. Here's the goal. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So that when you stand before God at the great judgment, the second coming of the resurrection, you'll be found not guilty. Notice that you will be found not guilty or above reproach uh, in his sight. Not in man's sight. <laughs> Aren't you glad that when God looks at you, he says not guilty? You're above reproach in his sight. You're blameless. Now, people can blame you for a lot of things. And they say, well, he's guilty of that. But guess what God said? Not guilty. So we will one day be presented, and that's the aim and that's the goal of bringing about this peace. We will be reconciled fully to God. But there's a condition. Look at verse 23. If you continue in the faith. Wow. That's scary. If you continue in the faith. Now the word the faith means the gospel. If you continue in the gospel. Now people say, oh, it looks like you can lose your salvation. No, it doesn't say that. There's no indication that they're going to fall away. It just says... You will be presented blameless, what? If you continue in the gospel. Look at this. Grounded and steadfast. That's the basis for us continuing. We're on solid ground. We're on a solid foundation. We're on the gospel foundation. All we do is just, just stand. You're grounded. What's left? If the ground is solid, there's nothing more, you don't have to worry about anything. Now remember, he's speaking to a group of people who live in an area where there are earthquakes, where the ground shifts all the time. And he's saying, but guess what? You've got a ground upon which to stand, which is firm. It's steadfast. It's the gospel. So you can see this imagery that Paul is bringing out here is uh, very interesting. And, so that's what we are to do. That's a plus, right? We are to do that. Stand firm 
on the gospel. Now, why is he saying that? Because there are people coming in and they're trying to get these new Gentile Christians to embrace Old Testament Judaism. Be circumcised, do this, keep that law, do this. He says, man, that'll move you away from the gospel. You start depending on the law. There's others that are in the Roman Empire that you need to come back and bow your knee to Caesar. You're going to end up being dead if you don't do that. And he says, no, just stand firm. Say, that's what you are to do. Now watch this. Look at the negative there in verse 23. Here's what you're not to do. And are not moved. See that? Not moved away by these other philosophies and these Jewish doctrines. Not moved away from the hope. Hope always deals with the future. The hope of the gospel which you heard. And this is a reference to the resurrection, the blessed hope, the coming of our Lord. We should always be just standing and just looking forward to that blessed hope, which you heard. Notice, this was a message that they heard through Epaphras when he came through and preached the gospel. Notice that that gospel message is not only what Jesus did for you, he died on the cross for you, but it had a future aspect. There's a hope, a blessed hope regarding the resurrection and the ultimate kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So Epaphras, which we saw last week, came and preached that message to them, which was preached to you in verse 23. Now watch this. Which was preached to every creature under heaven. The whole world has heard this message. What in the world does that mean? American Indians didn't hear it, did they? Every creature under heaven. He's talking about the known world, which means in the Roman Empire. Paul is writing this from Rome. The gospel is now reached into Rome itself. It has reached this entire empire. That's what he's talking about. It didn't only come to you, Gentile Colossians. It's actually gone and has reached the Gentile Romans, even in the capital city of Rome. That's what he means here in verse 23. And he says, of which... Verse 23, look how he ends it. Of which I, with an emphasis on I, I, Paul, became a minister. He is a minister first and foremost to the Gentiles. So that's how he's applying this song to his audience. Now he turns and he draws attention to himself in verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Look at that. I consider suffering for you, meaning you Gentiles, uh, a great joy. That's what James says. Consider it joy you know, when you go into various trials. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And then look what he says. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Wow. I fill up in my flesh what is what? Lacking in what? The afflictions of... Oh, it sounds like there's something lacking in Christ. No, we know nothing... Jesus' death didn't lack a thing, did it? So what in the world is he talking about? I'm, I'm making up for what was lacking. Well, there's a whole bunch of theories, and this is where it can get real hairy, but I can give you the simplest answer. This is this. That the prophets... The Old Testament prophets and Jesus spoke about 
what became known, what is known in theological circles as messianic woes, which simply says this, that before the great judgment and God sets up his kingdom, God's people must suffer. They must go through woes. These are known as the messianic woes. They precede the arrival of the kingdom of God. Sometimes the Bible calls these birth pangs. Before the arrival of a baby, what do you do? Uh, you suffer, don't you? And before God sets up his kingdom and there's the great judgment and resurrection, his people have to go through sufferings. And it's like when we go through sufferings, Christ is suffering even more than he suffered on the cross. He said, if they persecuted me, the what? Persecute you. And guess what we are? We're the body of Christ. Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Wait, that was Jesus up in heaven. But guess what he says Paul is doing? He's what? Persecuting him. How can you persecute Jesus? Because he was persecuting the saints, Jesus' people. So there's more suffering that Christ experiences when the saints suffer. And Paul says, I rejoice in this suffering. I'm filling up. I'm taking as much suffering as I can on behalf of Christ. And then he says this in verse 24, for the sake of his body. You see that at the end? For the sake of his body, which is what? The church. He would rather suffer himself than the Laodiceans suffer, or the other Christians suffer. So Paul tries to draw the suffering to himself. And I think that's what he's saying here. The reason for his suffering is that he's suffering on behalf of the church, which is the body of Christ. So when Paul suffers, it's the same as Christ himself, as it's Christ's body himself, itself suffering. Verse 25, of which I became a minister. A minister to the church and mainly to the Gentile church. According to the stewardship. Some translations say according to the trusteeship. According to the dispensation. From which God, from God which was given to me for you. For you. Uh, Paul feels that he has been given a trusteeship to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, God has given it to him. Remember when Paul was converted on the Damascus Road? God says, Jesus says to Paul, you're going to go to the Gentiles. You're going to speak to king, Roman, Roman citizens. And Paul realizes that this is a special ministry that's been given to him. He is a minister of the Gentiles. He has a stewardship, which means household manager. Did you ever watch Downton Abbey? Remember that guy, the head guy downstairs? He manages the house. He's the boss, isn't he? Look what his name is. Do I remember his name? Huh? Barson? Yeah, so he's the household manager. But he says goes. Well, guess what? It's, it's not the other people that are running the house. He runs the house. Paul says, I have been given a... I've been made the house manager over the Gentile church. I'm the one responsible for getting that gospel to the Gentiles. So think of it in that, those terms, which is very interesting. 
to fulfill the word of God, he says at the end of verse 25. In other words, this is uh, this could be speaking of a prophecy that he was to do this, or probably to preach the gospel, meaning make sure the gospel not only reaches Jews, but has is fulfilled totally by reaching the Gentiles as well. And then he describes this gospel, this word. The mystery, look at this, verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden, and this is what the gospel to the Gentiles is all about. It's a mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. But now has been revealed to his saints. He describes this gospel to the Gentiles. That the gospel will reach the Gentiles as a mystery. Now you know what a mystery is? A mystery is a secret. He says it's a secret or a mystery that's been hidden from people for generations. But now it's been revealed. It's been revealed to his saints. Now, I dabble in magic. I belong to a magic organization. I have a card where I have to sign a vow that I will never reveal the secrets of magic to anyone. Because these are secrets that have been hidden for generations. So I can't tell you the secrets of how I do all this magic. But if you join the organization, guess what? You get to get out on those secrets. What is a mystery to you now and be revealed to you in the future? That's what mystery means. It's a secret. Somebody read mystery novels? You know, Agatha Christie? It's a mystery novel? It's a mystery to who? Oh, to the reader. Not to Agatha Christie. She knows who done it. You just don't. We've all played the game Clue. We don't know who committed the murder. But guess what we had? It's a mystery. It's a secret. But we sort of look for the clues and finally we say, Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the library. <laughs> we figure it out. It's now it becomes revealed to everybody. A mystery is a secret. Okay. So what we have here is he says this idea that the gospel, this, that peace and reconciliation with God would be given to the Gentiles, the Jews would have never even thought of such a thing in the Old Testament. That was a mystery to them. But in these last times, through Paul, the minister of reconciliation to the Gentiles, it has now been revealed to the saints. Now Jews and Gentiles are open to the gospel, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So what we have is the Old Testament prophets talked about it. They talked about the gospel and the world being reconciled. They didn't understand it. Somebody said the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. It was a mystery in the Old Testament. But the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Suddenly in New Testament times that which was a mystery is revealed to the same. Does that make sense? So that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying now we, we understand this. And then look at verse 27. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery love among the Gentiles. The riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. Which is, here's what it is, Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. One of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. It's not Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's not what he's talking about. Christ in me as an individual is my hope of glory. The hope of glory, which talks about resurrection, is that Christ is in the Gentiles. In you, the Gentiles. Christ in the Gentiles is necessary for this hope to be realized, for the kingdom to come and the, and the resurrection to happen, and the great judgment day. It can't happen until the Gentiles receive the gospel. That's the hope. To the Jew first, and then what? To the Gentile. The Gentiles had to get the gospel before we could actually experience this hope of glory, this hope of resurrection. So while you know Christ in me, the hope of glory, can be interpreted the other way, it probably didn't mean that. It's nice for a devotional thought, but this is a big historical, theological construct that Paul is writing about here. And then verse 28 he says, Him we preach. Him we preach. Christ we preach. How do you preach Christ? Number one, warning. We warn people when we preach Christ. Who do you warn? Jews only? Every man. Every kind of man. Second of all, not only do we preach him by warning, we preach him teaching. Look, teaching. Teaching who? Teaching every man. Warning. What's a warning? A warning is an exhortation. What is teaching? Teaching is instruction. Two things Paul does when he preaches. He warns, he exhorts, and two, he instructs. It's not enough to warn. Bridge out. You ever see one of those signs? Bridge out. That's a warning. But guess what else you need? You need no instruction. Well, how do I get to where I want to go? Detour. <laughs> That's your instruction. So Paul is warning and he's instructing. And he's doing this for each person. Not only the Jews, but the Gentiles. In all wisdom, he says. In other words, when we preach the gospel, you got the whole package. So if somebody comes along and says, well, the gospel, yes, but you also have to be circumcised. They're wrong because, guess what? The gospel is the whole package. It includes all the wisdom, you see? that makes sense to you? And what's the goal of this? In the end of verse 28. That, so that, in order that, we may present, meaning every person, every man, perfect in Christ Jesus. So, when you trust Christ as your Savior and you pledge your allegiance to Jesus and the kingdom, you will be presented in what condition? Will there be anything lacking? Do you need the law? Do you need Roman philosophy? Can you add that to the gospel? No, the gospel is sufficient. See that? It's very important. Now look what he says in verse 29. To this end, I also labor. This is what I work for. The word labor means toil to the point of exhaustion. Look how he does it. Striving, that's an athletic term. In agony, I agonize. According to his working, which works in me mightily. And that word working is energy. 
I, I work to the point of exhaustion. I agonize, but I don't do it under my own strength. It's all according to his energizing, his energy that works in me mightily. Paul, when he stands up, he stands up there and he gives it his all, but he doesn't trust his flesh to produce the results. He trusts God's energy to flow through him and work mightily through him. And as a result, he gets the job done. He's very successful. Now he gives us the reason why he works like this. For I want, verse 1 of chapter 2, for I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. He wants them to appreciate the effort that he's putting into this task. Bragging a little bit here. I want you to know something. What do you want me to know, Paul? What great conflict I make, effort I make on your behalf and those in Laodicea. Now, what does he mean that he wants them to appreciate this great conflict, this effort that he puts into this task of, for them and the Laodicea? Can't be talking about preaching here. Because Paul hasn't preached to the Laodiceans in his life. He hasn't even seen them. But he can't be talking about preaching, can he? He didn't preach to the Colossians in his entire life. He's never seen these people face to face. So when he says, I want you to appreciate the conflict I have for you and the Laodiceans, and look what he says at the end of verse 2, and as for as many as I have not seen, have not seen my face in the flesh. He's not talking about his preaching. So what's, what conflict is he going through on behalf of these people? Well, I think there's one or two things that he could be referring to. You need to realize what great effort I put in praying on behalf of you people. So I have never seen. You know the people that you pray for, some of you pray for missionaries that don't even know who you are. You pray for, you know, unevangelized fields and people that you that they've never seen your face. And you pray and pour your heart out for them. They don't appreciate what you're doing. They don't even know you're doing it. Second of all, I think he could be talking about this letter that he's writing. He is making a great effort to write a letter to keep these people from falling by the wayside and embracing Jewish doctrine and Roman philosophy. And he is struggling over this letter. That makes sense if you read verse 1 again. Look what he says. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as I've not seen, that their hearts may be what? Encouraged. Well, that fits in with writing a letter. He's writing a letter that they will be encouraged and they'll be strengthened. It fits in with him praying for the people that they'll be encouraged and they'll be strengthened. So in verse 2, being knit together in love, that's his goal for them, attaining all the riches, not some, of full assurance, not some, of understanding, and of the knowledge of the mystery of God from both the Father and of Christ. So this is what he's trying to accomplish, I think, through his prayers and his letters. In whom, watch this, are hidden some of the treasures, no, whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is a treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge. The full truth resides in him. Roman law, Jewish law, Philosophy can't add one with Christ. We're complete in him. In verse 4 he says, 
Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you. This is the content of his letter. This is his purpose. The theme of his letter is that Christ is preeminent. I call that the theme of the letter. Christ is preeminent. The theme of the letter is what? The thrust of the letter. <laughs> the reason, the purpose behind the letter is that they not be pulled away by some character that comes in with persuasive words and says, hey, you need to add the wall to the gospel. You need to go back to Rome philosophy. Does that make sense? So here we see Paul's purpose for the letter. We must remain faithful in Christ. We've been baptized, and in our baptism we pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and to the kingdom of God, and now we need to stay true, we need to make sure we don't fall back into bad habits, old patterns, old way of thinking. Don't trade the inheritance, the full, total inheritance that you have in Christ, which includes the future, for a bold pottage. Because it's so tempting to do that. Stay firm in Christ. And we'll pick up at verse 5 next week. Amen? Lord, we thank you for a, a very, very important passage. And we begin to see Paul's thinking and Paul's heart and his desire to minister and uh, the cost that he he pays and the agonies that he experiences just to write a letter that's fitly written that has your full authority behind it that will make an impact on the audience and how he views his prayer on behalf of these believers as real work but work that's been energized by your spirit. Oh, Lord, help us to take these lessons that we've heard to heart and apply them to our own lives. In Christ's name, amen.